Appreciate those guys. Appreciate our worship team. Appreciate you being here this morning. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 27. And this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the Word of God and uh, talk about all the things that we've, we've seen and, and heard and experienced this morning already. Uh, we're celebrating Easter. We're celebrating the resurrection of Christ this morning. Matthew 27. I want to read verses 45 to 56. I think most of you in this room are, are familiar with this passage. Uh, this will kind of be our intro to what we're going to get to this morning. Matthew 27, verse 45. This is the, the death of Christ. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave, it, gave him to drink. And the rest said, Let be, let's, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Among them... Uh, among which also, which was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joses and the mother of Zebedee's children. And, and, and what we've read is the passage that describes the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for our sin. And you find that in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. It's in all four Gospels. And, and this is part of the story that leads up to Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection, because you can't have a resurrection unless you first have a death. And so, and so this passage concerning Christ's death for our sin, it's a biblical truth. It's historically evidenced, except in modern culture when we tend to write a revisionist form of history. But for, for hundreds of years, people didn't doubt the historical evidence of the life of Christ and the death of Christ. And the Bible even says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 that, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And I think, I think most people in this room, we've heard a, a piece of that story in some form or some fashion. But then the question comes, okay, now what? Now what? Like, yeah, I've heard the story. I've heard this, this thing of Christ being crucified for our sin. I, 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 man, I've, I've, I've heard the news. I've put the pieces together. But now what? And this morning, the message is entitled, The Beautiful Empty. And and I want to ask us a question this morning. What have we done personally with the crucified Christ? And that leads us to verse 57. Because right on the heels of Christ's death on the cross of Calvary, where there comes a unique story. And I think this is a powerful story for us to learn some things from Today, Matthew 27 and verse 57, it says this, when, when even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And he went to Pilate and he begged the body of Jesus. 
Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered, and when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and he departed. And so, man, this morning, we, we want to answer the question, what do we do with the crucified Christ? And this morning, we're going to look at a man named Joseph that was there on that day that witnessed the brutality of the cross of Calvary. And I think there's some things that we can learn from Joseph's life that we can apply to our own life. And so let me pray for us because I need it. And let me pray for you because you need it too. Amen. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, we need you. Thank you for the cross. I pray as we open your word, God, give us ears to hear. May we have a heart ready to receive what you have for us today. And Lord, may every person in this place and online, God, may you speak to our heart personally so that we can be more like Christ. We love you and we thank you for wanting to meet with us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you want to take notes this morning, you can follow along on your phone or uh, in those paper notes in your seat. Uh, but this morning, we're going to learn a little bit about Joseph. And, and I want you to start with number one, the fact that he's a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. He's a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's undercover. He's a follower of Christ, but nobody knows. And, and we're going to see why in just a few minutes. But God's Word has a lot to say about Joseph Joseph wasn't just a carnal pagan man. Actually, the Bible says that Joseph, number one, was a good man, according to the Scriptures. In Luke chapter 23, verses 50 and 51, it says, Behold, there was a man named Joseph. He was a counselor, and he was a good man and just. And here's what made him good in verse 51. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. In other words... Joseph would have been a part of that Sanhedrin council. And when they made the decision that we are going to betray Christ and have Christ crucified, Joseph actually dissented against the majority. He actually would not consent to killing an innocent man. He wanted nothing to do with what the council was planning and preparing to do. As a matter of fact, there were two guys I think that you could prove weren't a part of that. One was Joseph, the other was Nicodemus. And, and, so, and so Joseph was a good man and he had good intentions toward the Lord. Number two, he was a watchful man because the Bible tells us in Mark 15 and verse 43 that he was an honorable counselor which also waited for the kingdom of God. And so this guy was interested in Christ's kingdom. He was interested in Christ's kingdom glory. He was interested in Christ receiving the glory that he's due. This is a good dude. He's a good man. And not every sinner is just a wretched pagan. But this dude needed redemption. As good as he was and as watchful as he was, he still had to do something with the crucified Christ. Number three, Joseph was a fearful man. And, and, and what I mean by that is he's full of fear. And, and I want you to look at John 19 on the screen in verse 38. It says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. You see, this dude was an undercover follower of Christ. Now, I know there's nobody like that in this room. Those are at other churches and other places, right? But, but this dude was scared to publicly profess Christ because there were a group of people that he was a part of, the Jews, that would have persecuted him because of that. 
would have even possibly killed him because of that. And so instead of being full of faith, he was full of fear, and he wouldn't profess Christ publicly. And I'm going to tell you something. Listen, at, at the moment of the crucifixion, something changed in Joseph's life. He's going to move from being a man full of fear to a man full of faith. And that leads us to the second point in your notes. We see the solicitation of Joseph. The solicitation of Joseph. Because if we go back to verse 20, uh, chapter 27 and verse 58, the Bible says that he went to Pilate and he begged the body of Jesus. He begged the body of Jesus. And if we take that and we compare it to Mark chapter 15, the, the complimentary story, the Bible says that he went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you pay attention, but, but like, doesn't it seem like a switch has flipped in this guy's life? He, he's living his life as a fearful follower of Jesus, but now he's boldly begging and craving the body of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Man, listen, the disciples have fled. The religious leaders think they've won. The Roman political leader thinks that he's done what he's supposed to do. And this man that's full of fear, that followed from afar, and now he has a desire and a craving. And he's saying, give me Jesus. He's saying, give me Jesus. And he wanted Christ's body. And by the way, that was a literal, physical, real body on the cross of Calvary. It wasn't some spiritual body. It was flesh and bone and blood that was beaten and bruised and bore through with nails for our sin. That's the body that he wanted. Isaiah 53 tells us a little bit about that. Everything that happened on the cross of Calvary was was a fulfillment of prophecy. It, it was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. And listen, by the way, only God can do that. Anybody that would doubt the, the authority of Scripture, you have to come to terms with the fact that God said these things would happen. And, and they did happen. And, and so in Isaiah 53 is just one example concerning the prophecy of Christ. It says in verse 3 that He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes... We are healed. And listen, when you read that passage, what you have is a fulfillment on the cross of Calvary of why Christ died. It wasn't because of his griefs and his sorrows and his transgressions and his iniquities. It was because of ours. It was because of our sin. And so this literal flesh and blood body that bled out and died was God manifest in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you that, that something changed in Joseph's life where instead of following from afar, he was full of faith and he said, I want the body of Christ. And when we read that, we don't even understand the significance of that because, because listen, Joseph, well, he was, a, he was a Jew. And listen, to touch an unclean body 
would have made him unclean. And, and if you remember the timing, those of you familiar with the story, you know that, that man, there, there's a Passover and then there's a feast day or a high day. And, and listen, it would have made him ceremonially unclean for seven days. Numbers chapter 19, verse 11. He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. And, and again, you see it in verses 16 to 19 that he's to wash himself and to purify himself and wash his clothes. Can I just tell you that Joseph's desire to have Christ's body superseded his religious tradition. It superseded how he would be viewed from other people. Because everybody would have said, oh, you touch that dead body, man, you're unclean, right? Well, his desire wasn't determined by popular opinion. It wasn't determined by religious tradition. His desire was that, man, I want Christ. Give me Christ. And so what he did was he, he, he got the body, he took it down, the Bible says, in verse 53, he took it down, he wrapped it in linen. And man, I wish we had time this morning. But the significance of what he does with that body is so important. Man, that body that was beaten and bruised and bore through with nails for our sin, that was literally torn apart and whose blood was shed. Joseph takes that body and he wraps it in clean linen. You say, well, what's the point? That's what, that's what you would do with any body. Well, true. But when you study linen in the Bible, it actually points to some key things. As a matter of fact, the very first mention of linen in the Old Testament is in Genesis 41, and there's a man named Joseph who's arrayed in vestures of fine linen. And if you know anything about the Old Testament and Joseph, Joseph is one of the greatest pictures of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. And Joseph is arrayed in fine linen. And again, it symbolizes or represents Christ's glory, his, his, his godliness, his holiness, Joseph, this, this, this man of renown, even in this Egyptian kingdom, was arrayed in fine linen. And so it, it symbolizes authority. When you go to Exodus 26, man, the, the, the curtains of the tabernacle, the covering of the house of God, they were made with linen. It, it's what housed the glory of God and the place where the nation of Israel met with God was covered with curtains of linen. When you get to Exodus 39, you find that all the priests and the sons of Aaron, when, when they were to exercise the, the office of the priesthood, they were to have uh, uh, bonnets of fine linen and linen breeches, the Bible says, fine twisted linen. By the way, it's cool that your Bible has the word breeches, breeches in it. Just, you know, those of y'all from the South, you know what we're talking about. Go get your breeches on. Okay, I'm just saying, Whatever. I'm just making sure you're awake. Man, they had a girdle of fine twine linen. And so this whole thing of the priesthood is connected with this covering of linen. And it's associated with righteousness because in the book of Revelation, man, we read the end of the Bible. The Bible talks about the church, the bride of Christ, being clothed and arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. It's the righteousness of the saints that, that's imputed to us because of the righteousness of Christ. You say, why is that important? Because listen, on that cross of Calvary, and for that moment of time, God's authority and His holiness and His righteousness and His, His priesthood was set aside so that He could become sin for you and me. 
And the first thing that Joseph does is he takes that body and he wraps it back in linen because that's what he deserved. That's who he is. That's what he is. But man, listen, he, he forsook those things. He didn't forsake his deity. But on that cross of Calvary, he became sin for us. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 27 and verse 46, we read it earlier. You know, on that cross, he cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He calls out two times because two parts of the Godhead turn their back on the third part of the Godhead. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit forsook Christ as he was made sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what happened on that cross. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24 says, Who his own self, Christ, bear our sins in his own body on the tree so that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed and so listen that that solicitation of joseph paints a wonderful picture of somebody who just wants the finished work of christ applied to their own life he realized i, I can't imagine man I, I just can't imagine holding the broken, bruised, beaten body of Jesus Christ and knowing that his own sin was responsible for that. Just like yours and just like mine. That'll move a man from fear to boldness. And it'll move a man to understand, to desire Christ boldly. And, and listen, God is a gentleman. He's never going to force himself on you. But listen, there are people in this room that don't know Christ yet and listen, you have to make a decision to desire Him for your own life. It has to be a personal request. No one else asked for His body. But Joseph did. Man, I want it. I'm begging for it. I'm craving it. And so what did he do with it? Well, it leads us to point number three. He, he, he put it in a sepulcher. Point number three is your blank is a sepulcher. And I want you to look at verses 59 to 60. And, and so the Bible says when Joseph had taken the body... He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And man, listen, again, as this picture unfolds of a man that was scared to come to Christ, but now boldly requesting the body of Christ personally, it leads us to this sepulcher. Man, what does this what does this mean for us? What does it illustrate for us? Well, here's a couple of keys concerning this sepulcher that we need to understand. Number one, this sepulcher was located in a garden. And that's very interesting. In John chapter 19, you get a little more geography of, of where these events are unfolding. And it says in verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid, and they, therefore, they, they laid, they, man, let me get it right. They, <laughs> there laid they Jesus. I'll, I'll get it in a second. Therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. And I think there's an interesting connection for us to understand that in that garden was a tomb. And listen, if you know anything about the Bible, you ought to automatically go back to the book of Genesis. 
Because this whole thing of sin started in a garden. Genesis chapter 3, and, and that's your blank. Listen, the stain of sin started in a garden. And it was with a man named Adam and his wife Eve. And listen, they had a commandment from God and they rebelled against God. And they chose to reject God's word. And because of that, because of that, there was judgment of their sin. And, and listen, that sin nature that was exercised in the garden has passed to every man and woman that's ever lived since Adam. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says this, Wherefore, is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon how many men? All men. And, and all means all. For that all have sinned. And listen, our problem as humans didn't start with our employer, it didn't start with our spouse, it didn't start with anybody else. Our problem started in a garden. It started in a garden. And, and it started with the first man choosing to rebel against God. And, and listen, you would say, well, I, I wasn't in that garden. How could God hold me accountable for being a sinner when I wasn't the one that chose to, to rebel against him? Well, listen, friend, you've rebelled against him since then. Romans chapter 5 and verse 14 tells us that nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the multitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that's to come. And listen, man, you, you and I prove that we're sinners because we sin. We're a sinner by nature and we're a sinner by practice. We've broken on God's law, we've lied, we've cheated, we've stolen, we've blasphemed, we've lusted, you name it, we've done it. Because we're sinners. And we've sinned. And listen, that sin started in the garden. But let me just tell you, here's the key victory piece that we need to understand. Man, the issue of sin was defeated in a garden. And it was defeated because of Christ's obedience. And so because of sin, man was banished from the garden. He was separated from God. He was spiritually dead and disconnected from a right relationship with God. But man, because of of sin's defeat in a garden. All of those things can be restored. All of those things can be restored. Now man can have a right relationship with God. He can be forgiven. He can be born again spiritually. And he can have an eternity with the one who died for him. Man, there's something special about this sepulcher. Number one, it's located in the garden. Number two, it was hewn by its owner. And listen, this tomb was dug out by Joseph himself. As a matter of fact, we see that in the verse. It says that it's his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. I mean, Jamie illustrated it perfectly earlier. You know, I'll see you later. Maybe not. Because there's coming a day for every single one of us where we will breathe our last breath on this planet. And Joseph had been digging his own grave just like we are. Now, statistics say that 10 out of 10 people die. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says that it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And so listen, I don't want to be weird, but like every one of us in this room, we have a standing appointment with death. And you don't know when it is, and you don't know where it'll be. You don't know if you'll be young or if you'll be old. You don't know if it'll be summer or winter. 
But the reality is, man, that, that we are hewing our own tomb. And again, that's a result of our sin nature. Man, the Bible tells us in Romans 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin, according to the word of God, is transgression of God's law. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Sin is unrighteousness, according to 1 John 5 and verse 17. And we've all broken God's law in some form or fashion, and we've all lived unrighteously in some form or fashion. And because of that, we have sinned. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, and it's death. Okay, so go back to the picture. Joseph says, man, give me Christ. And he wraps him in linen. Because that's the, the glory and the righteousness that Christ is due. It's the priesthood. It's the finished work. It's all those different things. But then what he did with Christ was that he put him in his own tomb. And truly, that's what we have to do in type and picture. You see, when you come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, what you are doing is saying, God, I want your death for sin to be the substitution for my death, for my sin. And, and so get this key in your note. Listen, Christ's payment for sin must be personally accepted and applied. In other words, you may be sitting here and saying, hey, hey, listen, I, I get it. Christ died for the sin of the world, and I'm thankful for that. Here's what you have to reconcile. Has Christ died for your sin? And have you received that by faith? Have you accepted his, his payment, his propitiation for your sin personally? Can I just share a quick testimony? Listen, when I, when I grew up, uh, uh, you know, I had good parents, but we didn't necessarily grow up going to church regular and, and, and understanding things necessarily from the Bible. And, and man, I, I didn't grow up atheist in the sense that I didn't grow up believing there was not a God. Okay, that, the Bible says that's a fool. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. So I didn't grow up as a fool I believe that there was a God. I even believe the story of Jesus historically was real. But knowing that and believing that did nothing to secure my eternal forgiveness. I had to come to the place where I realized it was my sin that Christ died for on that cross. And that I personally had to receive His finished work by faith for me. And at the age of 21, my best friend in college asked me the question, hey, can I open my Bible and show you the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the Word of God? Can I open my Bible and show you what God's Word says about our sin and how He can forgive you according to the Scripture? Can I do that? He asked, he asked permission for that. And I was like, he was my best friend. I was like, yeah, show me that. And man, he opened his Bible up and he walked me through the doctrine of the gospel, and man, God's Holy Spirit got all over me. And the reason why is because I realized, hey, I knew all of these things historically, I believed them, but I had never personally accepted that into my heart and life by faith and asked Christ to save me from my sin. And so, man, at the age of 21, a long, long time ago, I won't give you the year, I had a lot more hair and less gray back then. But man, I put my faith and trust in Christ. And I asked Him to save me from a death that I deserved. And from punishment that I deserved. That's what Joseph is doing. 
Listen, he's, he's, he's taking the substitutionary atonement of Christ and he's applying it to his own tomb. We all have to make that decision. We can make the decision to do that or we can make the decision to reject that. Which means if we reject Christ's provision, then we will suffer the consequence of our own sin. Not just with a physical death, but in an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Number three about this tomb, man, listen, it was secured with a stone. And so the Bible says that when Joseph put Christ in his own tomb, that he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and he departed. And, and if you compare this with John chapter 19, you find that Nicodemus is also there helping put Christ in the tomb. And maybe Nicodemus also helped roll this great stone over the opening of this sepulcher and that gives you greater appreciation because when those women show up on the first day of the week, their concern is who's going to roll away the stone so we can go in and anoint the body of Jesus, right? They, 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 they know we can't open this tomb ourselves, And the reality is you can't open yours either. You won't be able to open yours either. Here's the key. No man is going to open this tomb. No man's going to open this tomb, and no man's going to open your tomb. You say, well, I got friends that have backhoes and bulldozers. Well, even if they open it, there's still a dead body inside without Christ. And so listen, this, this, this tomb, man, it, this, this sepulcher was secured with a stone. And then, and then let me just give you the last point, man. Listen, it was sealed by the enemy. I mean, if all of those other things weren't enough, You know, those religious dudes and, and Pilate show up again in the story. I mean, these dirty rascals, man. Look what it says in verse 62. It says, On the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together into Pilate, saying, Sir, uh, we remember that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Check this out. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure. Until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he's risen from the dead. Check this out. So that the last error should be worse than the first. And, and I think they already know we messed up by having this man killed. And Pilate said to them, you have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as ye can. And so they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone setting a watch. And so listen, as if it wasn't bad enough, man, these religious leaders and this Roman ruler double down and say, man, he's in the tomb. Let's keep him there. Like, like get the concrete out and cement that stone closed, right? Like get the, get the first century version of flex seal and just <laughs> lock that thing down so that nobody gets in or out. And man, if you study about these religious leaders, Christ likened them to having their father as the devil. Pilate is this Roman political leader who's a picture or type of the Antichrist. And they said, man, it's an error to kill him, but it would be a much worse error to have him come out of that tomb. You got an enemy that wants to keep you in, in your tomb. Man, the devil knows that you can't open your own tomb. Religion knows that you can't open your own tomb. The concern that both religion and the devil have is what is Christ going to do? Well, listen, if you've applied the finished work of Christ to your own life, well, there's something significant that's going to happen. And the devil can't stop it, 
and religion can't stop it, it's called a resurrection. It's called a resurrection. Let me give you the fourth point, and we're done this morning. The significance of the empty tomb. And again, man, I just want to read the story to you. Matthew 28, right into the next chapter. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. What man can't open, God can. And his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Hey, fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Man, God's not a liar. Hey, hey, hey he told you he wasn't going to be here. And I'm glad you showed up, but guess what? He ain't here. He's risen. What's the significance of the empty tomb? Well, here's the significance. Number one, Christ's resurrection fulfills Scripture. Because God cannot lie. He absolutely can't. And if he could, he's not God. And you can't trust him. But listen, if he can't lie, you can trust him. And his word is authoritative. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5, I delivered unto you that which I also, first of all, that which I also received, how that, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Because God's word is true. And man, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins, my sin and yours. And he did it according to the word of God. And he was buried. And what's interesting to me is he wasn't buried according to the scriptures. He was buried by someone willing to receive him. Whomever is willing to receive him and his finished work into their own life, well, he'll take your place in your tomb. And then he'll, he'll rise again the third day. And he'll offer you resurrection power by his finished work. And so listen, Christ's resurrection fulfills scripture. Number two, Christ's resurrection guarantees victory over death, hell, and the grave. And man, I'm telling you, there is power in this resurrection. When, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. And he says, listen, there's a great mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die, but we all are going to be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And, and listen, man, many of us have family, we have friends, we have co-workers that, that were believers in Christ. And man, they, they're laid in their tomb. Well, because of Christ's resurrection, they're going to be coming out. They've got victory over death, hell, and the grave. God says that those that are dead in Christ are going to be raised incorruptible, and we that are alive are going to be changed. For this corruptible, our old sinful nature and sinful man, must put on incorruption, this mortality must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Listen, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? And O grave, 
Where is thy victory? And listen, can you, can you just understand that, man, because of Christ's resurrection, those believers in Christ that have died before us, they will get to say to the grave, uh, you lose, sucker. Well, that's a loose interpretation of what they'll say, but man, there's no victory in the grave. There's no victory in death for the believer in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56 says that the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law and we've all broken it. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is the resurrection important? Because it guarantees you victory. Not because of your work or your righteousness. It gives you victory because of his resurrection. And then lastly, listen, Christ's resurrection guarantees a rapture for his saints. And man, I, I wish we had the time. And, and, and depending on where you are in your relationship with God and the word of God, that word may not mean anything to you. But man, listen, there's coming a day where Jesus Christ will return for his church, the body of Christ. And because of Christ's resurrection, man, it guarantees a rapture, a resurrection for his saints. In other words, Christ's empty tomb guarantees your empty tomb. But only if you know him personally. But only if you know him personally. And again, man, let me, let me wind this thing down. Are you like Joseph? What are you going to do with the crucified Christ? See, I believe there's some people in this room, there's probably people watching online that are like Joseph. Man, they're pretty good guys. Maybe they believe in Christ. Maybe they follow to a certain extent. But man, Joseph had a desire to have Christ's body replace his body in his own tomb. That the finished work of Christ needed to be applied personally to his own life. And listen, some of you are not yet saved it starts with having a desire. That Christ will never force himself into your life. You must come to him. You must come to him and ask him by faith to save you from your sin. Man, are you like a Joseph? Do you want that for your life? And then number two, listen, some of you are saved in this room and, and some of you are saved watching online. Can I, can I just make it applicable for the saints in the room? You know, Christ's bodily presence on this earth now is the body of Christ. It's the church. And if you're a believer in Christ, you ought to desire to be with Christ's body. In other, in other words, you, you would want to assemble with a church family, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And, and if you were to say, man, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, I don't really care for his church Friend, you are basically saying that you don't care for his body. And that's not a right relationship. It, it, it's like being married and saying, well, I love my wife. Don't ever say this, men. I love my wife. I just don't care about her body. Okay, now, now one, if you're a man, you're an idiot, number one, for saying that. You're a liar, right? You, it, 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 would, it would be the same as a woman saying, to her husband, well, I love you, I just don't care about your body. That may be a truer statement, actually. I don't, I, I, I don't know. All I'm saying is that you ought to desire Christ's body. <laughs> I'm about to get in marriage counseling trouble real quick. Man, listen, 
If you truly crave a relationship with Christ, you're going to get it through his body. You're going to get it through his body. And for some of you, that means accepting Christ for, for your penalty of sin this morning. And for some of us that are saved, it means committing ourselves to a local body of believers. Have you accounted Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for your personal sin? You see, it was from Joseph's tomb where Christ was resurrected. And because Christ is risen, you can have victory. You can have victory today, and you can have victory tomorrow because tomorrow is not guaranteed. But victory is, and resurrection is, and forgiveness is. And God wants to move us from fear to boldness and a right relationship with him. It all depends on what we do with the crucified Christ. Amen. Let's just bow our heads and, and think about these things. I'm going to ask Cody to come, and, and we're going to just pray and, and consider an attitude of prayer for just a few minutes, and then we'll sing a song, and we'll dismiss in just a minute. But man, listen, don't let what God's Word has to say to us flee from your heart and ear right now. Let's pray together and just ask God to, to, to cement down what we need to commit to Him today. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for your Word. I pray that 